0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Sometimes when I see the chaos and the injustice going on in the world, I can't help but think, where the hell is Superman? I mean, his motto is literally truth, justice, and the American way. So where is he? Well, that's why I want to welcome you to The Griot Daily, the only podcast that will tell you that not all heroes wear capes. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to another episode of the Grio Daily. Today, we're talking about justice and how it looks and how it works. You probably have heard that the Grio recently had its Grio Hero Awards, where we awarded not people like the rich people you always see getting accolades for being a philanthropist and an activist, but you know the grassroots people. The the people who work on the ground, the people who are out there doing the work. And one of them is today's guest, Daryl Atkinson. Daryl Atkinson is a founder and one of the workers with Forward Justice, and he is one of the recipients of this year's Griot Hero Awards. And my first question is, when you think about justice, when you think about heroes in the criminal justice system, we'd like to think of it as, you know, something that's multifaceted. But I'd like you to tell us exactly what your organization does and how it works.
1: Thank you for so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, so forward justice, um, we came into existence in the year that Donald Trump was elected president. We'd been in existence since that time. And we are a law policy and strategy center dedicated to advancing racial, social, and economic justice. We operate on three kind of intertwined theories Each in We believe W.E. DeBose was prophetic that the South is dispositive in this country, that as the South goes, so goes the nation. We believe that some of our most important transformative movements in this country have been led in the South and Southern-based movements, and those movements are led by directly impacted people, people who are under the boot of oppression. And what we try to do is offer our movement partners a toolbox of tools that they can use to effectuate the change that they want to see. It could be in the form of movement-building litigation and suing over the right to vote or barriers to the right to vote or looking to expand the right to vote to previously excluded groups. It could be the strategic communications and narrative change, where we're trying to redefine the way that we discuss these issues and the way that people think about the issue. Or it could be our other theory and major strategy, which is movement-built, using all of these various strategies and tactics to build a mass movement to create the people change that we want to see. And so we partner with movement partners in the state, in the region, And national. So,
0: what does that kind of movement building, that kind of reform look like in real time and on the ground?
1: Sure. So, for example, one of our movement partners is the North Carolina Second Chance Alliance, which I'm one of the founding members of. The Second Chance Alliance is a coalition of advocacy organizations, directly impacted people, faith based institutions that have come together to. Address the causes and consequences of coming in contact with the criminal record. One of the things we do for this coalition is try to advance their policy agenda. So, this legislative session, we helped introduce nine different pieces of legislation that dealt with everything from ending the prohibition of welfare benefits to people who've been convicted of felonies to Criminal record clearance and expanding criminal record clearance for people with records. We also, in 2019, sued the state of North Carolina around their policy of denying people the right to vote because they were on probation in court. Three of our organizational plaintiffs were part of the Second Chance Alliance, and the Second Chance Alliance wanted us to bring this suit because they didn't feel like they were having the same level of effectiveness. As other organizations, they went to the General Assembly to make their voices heard. So that's an example of, like, how we use our skills to assist our movement partners.
0: I always believe that legal advocacy is important. One of the things that, um, you know, I've been kind of thinking about lately, especially with these recent Supreme Court rulings, when we see Clarence Thomas, who was literally put on the court to... Dismantle affirmative action. John Roberts was put on the court to dismantle voting rights. Amy Coney Barrett was on there to dismantle abortion rights. And they largely succeeded. And it's because, you know, groups like the Federalist Society and groups like that, they basically have a grassroots Organization that raises up justices. They find justices, you know, when they start law school and train them in their movement to be legal advocates for conservative values. I've been thinking about, like, what would that look like for us? And, like, you basically have the answer that kind of grassroots legal advocacy that goes from the bottom to the top. You look at North Carolina specifically, where you know, as you know, 22 percent of the population is black and 55 percent of the incarcerated population is black. And we think about that as just from the perspective of the bottom of the criminal justice system where policing focuses on black people. But a lot of it is that when you get into the criminal justice system, you don't have advocates. It's not just money. It's access to legal representation, access to to people who might can get your criminal history expunged or the charges dropped or a plea bargain that might be for a lesser charge that might not take away your voting rights. So talk about how your organization, you know, doesn't just look at the beginning point, but how those issues matter all the way throughout the criminal justice system.
1: Sure. I I think a lot of it, Michael, is animated because... You know, we try to keep the needs and aims of directly impacted people. So winning a lawsuit just in the courtroom is only a piece of the puzzle. It's necessary, but not sufficient. We also have to make sure that that legal ruling in the courtroom or at the state legislature actually impacts real people's lives, right? It's actually having the impact that we intended. We use our legal skills ultimate to address those legal needs, but it's to bring that person into the fight. Because once we address their legal need, we want them to become more, you know, self-actualized and awaken to the issues that are happening around them. So they then become an advocate in themselves. It's like we aren't just trying to feed people fish. We're trying to teach them to fish so we can continue to build a powerful mass movement. So for example, when we won our initial win on expanding the rights of people who were on felony probation to vote in 2022, we just didn't leave that win in the courtroom. We filed a public records request and got a list of everybody that that applied to who was impacted by our win. And we phone banked them all. We text blasted them all. We sent them all direct mail so they could get registered to vote. And you know what, Michael? It had an effect. Out of that 39,000, 40,000 people, we were able to get 33% of that population registered and 16% of them actually voted in the 2022 election. Now, the Supreme Court, our North Carolina Supreme Court, took a hard right turn in the midst of this lawsuit. And when we argued the case this February before them, they ultimately ruled against us because they are very much a partisan animal, just like our federal Supreme Court. But what we know is that these people may lose the right temporarily, but we don't lose the people because our data scientists has told us 25,000 of that 39,000 gets off probation this year. And we already have a plan to get them re-registered so they can impact electoral. That's just an example for us. We're a multidisciplinary shop. We have lawyers, we have organizers, we have narrative specialists, and we believe those three faces of power—changing law, policy, and practice in the way that builds power for our people, changing narrative culture and values in the way that we talk about these issues and perceive them, and building a mass movement—are necessary to create the transformative change that we want to see.
0: I think that's important, you know, especially the second aspect where you, you know, you contact the people affected by the policy, because a lot of what we think of as voter apathy works on the back end where if you have a felony, you might think, well, I can't ever vote. And you might not even know the specifics of the voter disenfranchisement for felony rules. So you just don't try. So that'll have an impact. I'm sure you've seen it when a federal court ruled against Jesse Helms' what, 1992 campaign for intimidating black voters on just that specific aspect of the law, right? Like, you know, he was barred from doing that ever again. He had to sign a consent decree because that's specifically what he did. He called black voters and said, hey, you know, if you vote, you go, you might go to jail. And it worked. So how did you get into this specific, not, you know, the law, but what made you think that this would be an effective and a necessary strategy and organization that will impact people in your state?
1: Yeah, I mean, my life circumstances kind of propelled me in this direction. In 1996, I was convicted of a first-time nonviolent drug crime, drug drug trafficking, and given a 10-year prison sentence. I spent 40 months in prison on that prison sentence. And while I was there, I was, I guess now looking back on it, fortunate enough to be sent to a maximum security institution. Sixty percent of the population had life without parole. It was a very dark place as far as where hope was concerned. And while I was there, I met some jailhouse lawyers, one James McConaughey and all the Chalmers Wright. They found out that I had a little bit of college education. I was at a couple of semesters under my belt at Tuskegee before I went to prison. And they wanted to talk. And I remember this scene like it was from a movie, just like it was yesterday. I'm in James's cell and I'm talking to him about, you know, what education I had. And this big huge guy busting in his cell and he has a pillowcase of coffee and cigarettes. And he dumps them on McConaughey's bed. He says, I need you to work on my case. Because what you got to understand, Michael, you know, most people are poor, come in contact with the criminal legal system in the state of Alabama. You will afforded a public defender and counsel for your direct appeal. But anything after that, you had to find legal representation by your own devices. And as a result, jailhouse lawyers, people inside who knew how to do legal work, were very, very powerful. And so the guy's coming to James to get him to work on his case. And James was like, I don't want your jail money. The guy says, well, what do you want? And then James says, I want you to learn the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Alabama rules of civil procedure, evidence, and criminal procedure. And then I need you to go do political education with Brother LaFundee over there. And after you've done some of that, come back and see me and I'll think about working on your case. And on any given day... Not everybody signed up for this, but uh, some brothers did. And on any given day, you could see 35 to 40 men when Yard was called walking to the law library to work on their case. And it will be men shepherdizing cases. It will be men going through fact transcripts. It will be men working collaboratively together. And I witnessed James get probably about 12 men out of prison while I was there with him. Because they had erroneously technically violated the parole, but that wasn't the piece that got me. The piece that got me, and this relates to your question: Why forward justice? Why do the work in this way? The piece that got me that James had instilled in these men was a sense of hope. Men who had stopped pressing their whites, men who had stopped taking visitations, because Michael, when you asked these men how much time they had, they said all of it because they were never coming home. But to see now that they had a sense of purpose, that they had a sense of direction, that they were not hopeless anymore, I said, I want some of that. Whatever that is, if I can use the law as a tool to instill hope, to inspire more leaders, to join what I think of as the army of the people who've been wronged, then that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my career and that's why, you know, we started Forward Justice. You know, we
0: talk about this in the terms of the criminal justice system, but, you know, it's important. And we've talked about it on this podcast. I've investigated Alabama prisons for over a year. The deadliest prison system in America. It's deadly, literally deadlier than cancer. And so this is not just a legal issue, but what you're talking about is like saving people's lives and... Because, again, like you said, once they get behind those bars, there is no hope. There is no legal representation. You do not have the right to access the criminal justice system or the justice system of America. And so when you think about this and think about how it can be effective nationwide, what are some things that we as people who watch this, who aren't lawyers, who might not have a grassroots organization behind us. What are some of the things that we can do to affect change like this?
1: First thing is, you know, um, you know, the young folks used to say, "Get woke," you know, meaning, you know, raise your consciousness to the issues that are happening around us, right? And then getting in where you fit in can happen in any number of right. ways because the carceral footprint has impacted every aspect. Of people's lives. Whether it's mentoring children of incarcerated parents, if you feel more comfortable with dealing with kids, that could be a link. Whether it's doing things like helping us at Forward Justice and phone banking and calling low propensity voters, directly impacted voters, poor voters to get more people registered and get more people engaging in the civic process, it can look like that. And then, quite frankly, Michael, it can look as simple as writing a check or donating to another worthy organization that may be within your you know, six degrees of separation. So, you know, helping out and getting in this fight can look any number of ways.
0: Yeah, I, I want to uh, stress that last part. Like The check part is definitely important. We think about like just like the effectiveness of the topic we talked about earlier, the Federalist Society is because it's, they got a lot of money from people who just have money and donate to affect the law. Like, we see the dismantling of affirmative action wasn't a grassroots movement. A rich dude just says, hey, I am going to take on this issue and fund it, right? The same thing with abortion. The same thing with the anti-LGBTQ. The same thing with the anti-CRT. Like, it's it takes money, and who we are fighting against is individuals with a lot of money, who are funding these issues that take away our rights. I want to thank you for coming on here today. Now, we always leave this show. We always tell them to tell a friend about this show, to download the Grio app, to subscribe on every platform. But we also leave with a black saying, Um, you know, one of your favorite sayings that people might not have heard, but, you know, we know we've heard it from each other. So tell us, what is your favorite saying your favorite black saying that you've heard and has not made it into the popular culture
1: man you, you you put me on the spot I don't I don't know if it's a black saying but it's a saying that we use during um our voter engagement particularly for justice involved voters. and forgive me if this is a little long that I want to give you a little context because I think itll it'll, it'll make more sense the we believe that the way to get justice involved voters activated was to make this thing kitchen table, right? Meaning that here you are, you get to vote on who the district attorney is going to be, who the judge is going to be. You get to scrutinize their record the way that they used to scrutinize your record. And the way that I would put it to it was like, you know, there was a great, great, great philosopher named Elmer Fudd who put it this way. Ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. And now you have the gun of the ballot and you can vote these people out, the very folks who profiled you, who over you, you, overcharged you. Now you are the rabbit with the gun and you get to vote those folks out. So I don't know if it's a black saying, but ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. I think it's Elmer Fudd's saying,
0: but it's a saying that we adopt because (laughs) I've heard it a million times. It ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. And it always seemed like the rabbit don't get the gun. That's right. We want to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time on The Griot Daily. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review, download The Griot app, subscribe to the show, and to share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegriot.com. You are now listening to The Grio's Black Podcast Network, Black
1: Culture Amplified.
0: The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy. I'm a black man, and I can never
1: be a veteran.
0: Being Black the 80s is a podcast docu-series hosted by me, Torre, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, Lost their humanity. You couldn't be like no soft, smiling, happy go lucky drug dealer. You had to suppress that.